this morning's scripture is going to be First Chronicles 16, 8 through 35. And it starts out with, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him songs, psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirm it and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel for an everlasting covenant saying to you I will give the land of Canaan as an allotment for your inheritance when you were few in numbers indeed very few and strangers in it when they went from one nation to another and went from one kingdom to another people. He permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my, pro and do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised he is also to be feared above all gods for all gods of the people are idols but the lord made the heavens honor the majesty honor and majest, majest, honor and majesty are before him strength and gladness are in his place give to the lord o families of the people give to the lord glory and strength Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all the fullness let the fields rejoice in all that is in it. Then the trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And say, save us, O God, of our salvation. Gather us, gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for this day. We thank you for your wonderful word that uh, is given to us that we may know you more. 
Father, we thank you so very much for all you give. We love you and praise you and thank you. It's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I don't have a particular passage yet that we're going to go to um, to begin the teaching this morning. And it is something a little bit different, something I'm not really um, fully comfortable with, and that is more of a topical message. We generally do not do that here at Carlsbad Bible Church. We teach expository, and we have been going through the book of Philippians, doing that chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But for these next four or five Sundays, we're going to be going through our church's vision and value statement, something that is new for us as a church. And I want to remind you that especially when one is presenting something that is more topical in nature, that you be like those noble-minded Bereans in Acts chapter 17 when Paul and Silas went into the synagogues, that the people just didn't trust what Paul and Silas told them as they expounded on the scriptures, but they went to the source. They went to the very scriptures to see if the things that they were hearing were actually proven in the scriptures. So we commend you and encourage you to do the same, and especially so today. So I never really thought that we would be here and where we are sharing a vision statement for our church. And we see that God has grown us to the point where we feel it is something necessary for us. A vision is something that projects forward. It looks at an end goal, what we want to progress towards. And for an individual Christian, this may seem a little strange because Our end goal, ultimately what we strive for, what we persevere to, is to one day stand before God and hear him say, enter in, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is ultimately the end goal, that is the vision for us. None of us here are clairvoyant, we cannot predict the future. What our vision is intended to do is guide us along a path that we believe God has set out for us as a church. What is our small spot in this grand design of God? What are we called to do? We have never made it about the numbers that we bring into this church, the numbers that are attending, and we don't ever want to do that. That is a trap to get caught in. The question for us is, what are we doing with the numbers that we have, those that God is bringing in? Those of us who have felt called to by God to pastor the church, must take this very seriously. We have a charge that is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This is an exhortation to the elders, to leaders within the church. And he writes there, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's 1 Peter 5, 1-4. One can look back and see what has and what has not gone well in the history of churches. And success in numbers is not necessarily excess in obedience to God's word and his design for the church. And we are not pretending to be a perfect church here because it is made up of imperfect people. If you go to a church that says that they have perfect people or they're a perfect church, 
I would turn around and walk right back out (laughs) because none of us are perfect. But the closer we model ourselves after the scriptures and heed its instructions, the better off we will be. And I must confess that at first I had a lot of hesitancy uh, for our church to have some kind of guiding document other than the scriptures. We have been a church now going on 12 years, so you can see how long my hesitancy has held out in this. But as we began to see these take shape, as we began to prayerfully consider and ask for the Lord's guidance in the development of this vision and values, I started having peace about them. I could see how God could use this to help me and those leading our church have more clarity going forward and provide us with some sideboards of how we can better shepherd the flock that is among us. David Dietz, who some of you have met, he's taught here at this church a couple of times. He's done some sessions with us. He is from the Institute of Biblical Leadership, and he was very instrumental in helping us along with these. He introduced us to a church called Revolve Bible Church out of California who shared their testimony with us on how it helped them navigate through difficulties and make decisions for their church. And so as we are getting ready to establish the office of deacon here, we've not yet set that up, but when we, want, when we stand up this office of deacon, uh, we wanted to have these in place to be an instrument to aid us in making decisions and laying out responsibilities for both our elders and deacons. And the vision and values are intended to serve as our framework that will guide decisions for what our church will and will not affirm or uphold. And we also will use it as the filter through which ideas, ministries, teachings, missions, uh, etc. will be decided on. And we may have to turn down certain uh, ideas and opportunities because they do not fit within the scope of what we have set out to do for Carlsbad Bible Church. And this does not mean that we think an idea for a ministry is not worth someone else pursuing or that it's doctrinally in error. It just means for our church that this is not something that we will engage or support. So we have four values that follow our vision, and we will be sharing those over the course of the next four Sundays. We will have a separate message for each one, I'm teaching on the vision statement today, but then next Sunday we will have the authority of Scripture as one of the values that upholds the vision. And then Ray will teach on our church being gospel-centered. Barry will teach the message on our people. And I will close with the discipling value or equipping the saints. And we don't want to lose sight, however, that above it all, we hold the scriptures to be supreme, that this is the authoritative word of God. So our vision and values don't sit here, but rather our vision and values sit here with the word of God being authoritative over those. And we hope that you will see the same thing. We'll be sharing these in in a document that will be provided. Uh, We hope to have some banners created that will remind us of our vision and values as a church, and we'll put those throughout the church. But I want to throw in the cliche verse from Proverbs that many people use to support for having a vision. And Proverbs tells us in chapter 21, verse 18, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. And I say this is cliche because this is what some would use as 
their platform to stand on and say, this means a church has to have a vision statement. But I'm not going to take that out of context because uh, rather than this supporting a vision statement, this speaks to the people in the Old Testament times where God spoke through his prophets. What I read to you was the NASB translation of that verse. If you look at the ESV, it states where there is no prophetic vision, then the people will cast off restraints. And today, on this side of the cross, as a church that exists in the New Covenant, the prophecy to us is not the Old Testament prophets, though we use the Old Testament, of course, to guide us, but we do not hear directly from man, we have it directly from God, and that is found in His Word. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus has come into the world as God's living word to us. He is fully God, but he was fully man as well. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we know that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So we see Jesus Christ being the word in verse 14 of that same verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. God has also given us his written word, our scriptures. And when we fail to read God's word and live it out in our lives, we become people without vision. When we ignore God's word, we begin to live without restraint, and we do so to our own peril. Conversely, When we obey God's instruction for our lives found in his word, we will find blessing. Jesus said in John 15, 9 through 11, As the Father has loved me, so have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. God has given us his word, and he calls us to be faithful to it, to live an obedient life that is patterned after what we find in his word. In keeping God's word, we will find blessing. We will find joy. We will find, therefore, as well, conviction. We will find rebuke for us, but all of it is for our good. And this is why you will find in our vision and values a continual emphasis on God's word. And so I think to start things off, I'm going to tell you how we came to be Carlsbad Bible Church. And I'm going to try to stick to my notes, so this may sound like it's being read off, but I didn't want to venture too far outside of that because I can get lost in my thoughts when I start sharing personal testimony kind of things. Um, So it's just going to appear like it's read, but I just wanted to present you some of the things that we went through and kind of where God or how God brought us to this point. And so I think to start things off, Um, The simple telling of this story is that God brought it about according to his sovereign design, but I get asked a lot how God brought us to where we are today. And so, you know, here it goes, though it might seem a little clunky, I hope you can make sense of it all. And I'll start back in July of 2000 when me, Jody, and our two children, Brooke and Brandon, came back from Germany where I had been working as an opera singer, and I decided to start life all over again in the U.S., And there were many reasons for our deciding to leave Germany. We spent three years there from 1997 to 2000. But one of the main reasons was we wanted to find a place of fellowship and growing in our faith. Um, Nobody there, we didn't 
uh, especially Jody, it came hard for her to understand the language. I was immersed in, in it in the workplace, so I picked it up a little bit, but finding uh, like-minded believers was very difficult for us. So we had that longing within us as believers to have that fellowship, to grow in the body of Christ. And Jody and I both professed faith in Christ at a young age, but like many other people, um, we had struggles in our marriage. And probably um, that was due to us both being very young when we got married and started a family out very young as well. And we just sort of tried to pick back up where we left off when we left for Germany in 1997. And my plan was not to abandon my passion for music and eventually go back to school and finish my education, possibly pursuing a teaching career. Well, life doesn't stop, and earning a living is priority for a man with a wife and two kids, so I went to work as a bookstore clerk at Carlsbad Caverns National Park and then went to manage the store at Guadalupe, and we were just going to wait for an opportunity to open, and I would likely return to school. That was the goal for us. That was the the temporary vision. (laughs) So we started going back to First Baptist Church, uh, where I had attended at a young age and also where Jody had attended. And we started going very regularly, taking part in Sunday school, uh, singing in choir. And I was often asked to sing specials for the service since I had been singing professionally. They just kind of plug you in. They don't really care what your doctrine is. It's just go sing a special for us. Um, I was eventually asked by a small local Baptist church here, Cavern Baptist, if I would like to come and lead the music there. And I don't remember there being really any kind of vetting or application process. It's like, okay, well, this guy can sing. He must be able to lead music. Um, and so that's, that's what I did for a couple of years there. After being at Cavern Baptist for two years, we eventually transferred to Loving Baptist Church, where I served as music minister there for, I think, almost six years or a little over six years. And this is where Jody and I really sought for our family and us to grow with others and in our relationship with God and the knowledge of his word. So I'm going to insert an intentional gap in my sharing of this as I intend only to focus on how we were led to become a church and the work that God was doing to bring that about. But I will simply say that there was a span here where God was working to expose some habitual sin in my life that was destroying me and my family and causing my spiritual growth to suffer. And it was only in God bringing that sin into the light and being held accountable that I began to experience Doors opening that I never knew were doors at the time until I look back and recount this story. And having the weight of carrying this hidden sin lifted off of me was like a spark that ignited a hunger and a thirst for wanting to know more about God's Word, a desire to know Him more intimately through a deeper study of His Word. And there was something missing in what we were getting out of the Sunday school literature that was provided at the church that we were going to. And I think Wes alluded to this last week in his message where the literature that we provided seemed to skip over difficult texts in the scriptures. And we wanted to know, even though it was difficult texts, let's, let's seek to understand it. And so that sort of launched a, a, us to embark on a, a journey here to find or there are other churches that are teaching in a way that doesn't skip over this. And so... It may sound strange to us at the time, but we began to listen to messages from others that brought out so much more meaning in the text because they didn't just skip over the hard passages, but really took time to look at the scriptures in context and really try to draw out the meaning that God intended. 
And along with some other men at the church, I started taking part in a men's Bible study on Wednesday evenings that went through the scriptures this way, in an expository way. And that study still continues here today on Wednesday evenings. Um, I hope he doesn't mind me name dropping here, but Wes, (laughs) once again, I remember a time that I was sharing a story with him. um, And I hadn't known Wes very long at the time. I you know, been attending there a while, and Wes came and joined uh, Loving Baptist, but there was a man that I had met during a Sunday evening service at First Baptist Church during the time that Jody and I had returned for one of my six-week-long breaks that I got when I was working at the theater. We'd always come back to the U.S. and spend time with family and return to church. Well, during one of those times that we returned to the U.S., I had attended a service at First Baptist, and they had a special guest there speaking at the time, and I believe, I'm not sure exactly what the content of the message was, but I think it was on creationism. And at the end of it all, as, a, as Baptist churches tend to do, they have an altar call at the end, and I wanted somebody to pray with, so I went forward at the, uh, at the time that they did the altar call. And uh, I was, uh, had been assigned this, this man to you know, talk with me and share with me and also to pray with me, because um, I was feeling like my life, though being successful at what I went to school for, was not turning out as I'd hoped. And so this gentleman by the name of Paul Mello was the one that was assigned to me to come and pray with me. And at the time, because I went forward at an altar call, he thought, oh, well, maybe I wanted to make a profession of faith, but that was not really what I was up there to do. When I told him I was just up there uh, for prayer and also wondering what, li- what turn my life was taking and not feeling like I was really doing anything for God, he prayed with me, and that started a long-distance correspondence for a few months after I had returned to Germany. Well, you fast forward about 10 years later, and here I was talking to Wes about this man that God had brought into my life at such a critical moment and how he was used by God to minister to me. Well, I didn't know this, but Wes also knew this man, And in fact, Wes had been going to the church where this man was the pastor at one time prior to, I think he had retired and then he became a member over at First Baptist Church. But here's the neat part of the story. The church where Paul had been pastor was a little church on Oak Street, just about a block or two from where we sit. And the name of that church was Carlsbad Bible Church. And we both thought it was a really neat that God had brought this man into our lives at different times, but neither of us knew that we would be here today and I would be one of the pastors here at the rebirth of Carlsbad Bible Church. Our desire to grow more in the knowledge of God's Word eventually led us away from where we were at Loving, and we started a home Bible study in a rent house owned by my cousin, Miles, and Several other families kind of started this with us and joined us, and within about six months, we found the building where we had been prior to our moving here about a year ago, and we resurrected the name Carlsbad Bible Church when we filed our 501c3 organization papers. I won't tell you all the other names that we thought to come up with. At the time, we were next to the Happy's Restaurant, and uh, one of our elders at the time thought maybe Happy Bible Church would be a good name. We disagreed, and we went elsewhere. (laughs) So, but now we, we are here, and by the grace of God, we have continued as a church fellowship, and I have been blessed to have crossed the paths with many people that have made a huge impact in my life and the life of our church. And we started as a fellowship of only about three or four families, has now become the congregation that we are here today. 
and many faces have come and gone, but the Lord has continued to bless us with faithful saints that have been ready and willing to step into the roles that God has called them to fulfill in the body of Christ. And that is one of the reasons that we are here today starting the launch of our vision and values for the flock, the congregation of believers called Carlsbad Bible Church. And I don't take any credit or glory for what God has done to bring this about. He has brought to this church faithful men and women that are ready to come alongside each other to serve God with their God-given gifts. And we want to provide the framework for the exercise of those gifts for His glory and the advancement of His kingdom. And so because we are a Bible church and because we hold here a high view of God and His Word, we felt it appropriate to capture this within our vision for the church. Because I feel the origination of our church was because we wanted to offer something that we didn't feel any other churches were offering here. We wanted to be a place where someone could come and simply walk with us through the Bible together, one book at a time, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And up to now, the books of the Bible that we have studied together as a church, we've gone through the book of Acts two times. We studied that one twice. Uh, We've been through the book of John We've been through the letter to the church in Galatia. We've been through James, James's epistle, the Sermon on the Mount, which is mainly the five through uh, seven of Matthew. And we've been through the book of Proverbs, Colossians, Philemon, first, second, and third John, and now we are in the book of Philippians. So we still have quite a bit of uh, territory in our word to cover, but those are the books that we've done so far. And there have been some topical message interspersed within, but by and large, we teach the Bible in an expository manner. So here is what our vision says about that. And I don't know if Nick has put it up there yet, or Jeremy, if y'all could... Nope. You want to cast that up on the projector? It didn't work. work? Okay. I'll read it to you. (laughs) It works for Wes. I think... Were you giving him some some money under the table money over there, Wes? (laughs) All right. Here is our vision statement. We exist to glorify God as a Christ-centered church who is faithfully committed to a high view of God and His Word through expository preaching while equipping the saints to advance the cause of Christ, both in our community and around the world. I'll be reading that again a couple of times as we go through this together. But let's think about first what it means when I say, or we say, we exist to glorify God. What is it to glorify God? To glorify God means that we seek to make God the focus in the way that we conduct our praise and our worship of Him. And He is the only one who is worthy. One of the hymns that I remember leading in the Baptist congregation made this claim in the chorus. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory, great things He hath done. Last week when Jody and I were on vacation, we got to see some beautiful things in God's creation, and all we could do upon seeing these things was proclaim, how amazing are you, God, that you created all of this. And we are beholding the the residue of his glory. He created it all perfect, and there's still that beauty that exists there, even though we're in a fallen world. Psalm 111, 1 through 3 says, Praise the Lord, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord. Studied by all who delight in them, full of splendor and majesty is its work, and his righteousness endures forever. And in the book of Revelation, we are told that this will be the aim of his creation, to give him glory. 
Revelation 14, 6-7 says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, and an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Glorifying God will be one of our chief aims as we direct our praise, adoration, our thanksgiving, and our worship to Him and to Him alone who is worthy. One commentary from a website called gotquestions.org states the following. One of the names of God, El Elyon, the Most High God, is the possessor of all true majesty and resplendence. Glory is by virtue of His nature, and He rightfully refuses to share it with others. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or praise my praise to idols. That's Isaiah 42.8. By virtue of who God is, we have an obligation to glorify him at all times. Those who refuse to glorify God face severe judgment, as witnessed by the example of Herod usurping God's glory in Acts chapter 12. Now, in our individual lives, for the believers in our church, we can glorify God in various ways. And we can do that through the things that we say, through our words. We do that through the songs of praise and worship that we sing, giving our thanksgiving to God, but we can also glorify God through our works of service for Him. In Matthew five sixteen, we find there, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Another passage from John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. So we exist to glorify God as a Christ-centered church. When I say Christ-centered, I think about where we aim our, our worship, our praise, our conversations, the things we center ourselves around. Because there are so many attractive things that this world has to offer, but they all pale in comparison to the majesty and the splendor of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for our redemption. Stephen talked about us being image bearers of God, and as image bearers of God, we were designed with a yearning for something to worship. And if our hearts do not worship God, they will worship something else. It could be a family member, it could be an individual, it can be our work, it can be our toys or our phones or things that we have. Our hearts are designed to want to worship something, and if our hearts do not worship God, they're going to yearn and want something else. And therefore, if we are not Christ-centered, we will be centered on something that is far less valuable. If we measure our worship as the amount of time, money, and emotion we spend on something, then what does that look like for us? Our worship is impossible to hide. So one of the things that we should be seeking to be Christ-centered is to pattern our lives after Christ. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the model for us, that he is the author, that he is the perfecter of our faith. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So to say that we are Christ-centered means that we will desire to be more like him 
and so as to become more like him. We want Christ to be what we talk about. We want him to be who we yearn to spend more time with. And this should mean that we choose to obey his commands out of a love and an honor for our Lord, not being uh, just fear of being caught in sin. And the greatest desire of a Christ-centered believer is to please him and to grow to be more like him. And we haven't gotten there yet in our study of Philippians, but we want our lives to echo what Paul says in Philippians 3.10, that we may know Christ and his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible we might attain the resurrection from the dead. So centered was Paul's affection and devotion upon Christ. He could express these words in sincerity. Those that make Christ the aim of their devotion glorify God. So we can see how this Christ-centeredness circles back on the first one and that being Christ-centered enables us and helps us to glorify God as he deserves. Now we should be careful that we don't confuse a Christ-centered life with a religion-centered life. And Scripture provides us the example of the Pharisees during Jesus' time when he walked this earth. They were called religion-centered and not Christ-centered. And this is what we want to avoid. Chapter 23 of Matthew, verses 25 through 26, says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. So their primary focus, the Pharisees, was abiding by the law. They lived, they ate, they breathed the law, they memorized it and confined ways in which you weren't adhering to it and how you were violating it. And Jesus would deliver some of his hardest rebukes to the religious zealots because they were law-centered and they were not Christ-centered, they were not love-centered, and that was what made all the difference. A religion-centered life will strive for supremacy. It will strive for attention and glory based on how one performs. They will judge you by a self-made standard that even they themselves will fail to live by. To live a Christ-centered life is to see Christ as our all in all, that our life rests in his finished work on the cross of Calvary on our behalf, and that should inspire us to also yearn for holiness ourselves as a means of staying close to him. Hebrews twelve fourteen: strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which one will see the Lord. So it should also be recognized that not a single one of us, no matter how morally upright that we try to live, will live a perfect life except for our Lord. He is the standard of perfection. But even though we may strongly desire to manifest a Christ-centered life, we will have moments where we'll stumble, where we'll fall, where we'll sin and make fleshly decisions uh, based on moments of weakness. 1 John 1 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousnesses. But for those who are sincere in their faith, there will be an unsettledness when they sin. There will be an awareness of having grieved the Spirit of God, driving us to want to quickly confess and be restored to fellowship with him. We are continually being sanctified. It's a lifelong process whereby God is making us more and more like Jesus. So we want to be a church that glorifies God, a church that is Christ-centered, and a church that is faithfully committed to a high view of God and His Word through expository teaching. So though we are image-bearers of God, we are not God. There are attributes of God that are not attributes of us, or the degree in which God attains this attribute, we 
pale in comparison to that because of our sin, and that is why we have to be found in Christ and His righteousness. And there are many churches out there today that claim to put confidence in God, but what you see is a very man or people-centered worldly view. I call it American Christianity. There is no reverential fear of the Lord because they are too caught up in trying to serve and worship man or serve and worship and experience, and therefore they have a diminished view of God. It's very easy to get caught up in that. If we say we have a high view of God, then we are affirming the view that Scripture says that we should have of God, that He is worthy of all of our worship and praise. Isaiah 46, 5 through 11 To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold in the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel should stand forever, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Calling a bird from the east and a man from counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. This is the God of Scripture. God in his word has told us who he is, but he's also told us who we are. Jesus said our orientation to God in the beginning of the model prayer that he gives us. When we say, our Father who art in heaven, high above us, hallowed be thy name, that he is far holier, far greater than us. We orient ourselves to the God that is supreme and reigns on high. We are to properly orient ourselves to God, the one who is most holy and rules from his heavenly throne. It puts us in our place when we do this. See, we can't change God's position. We don't have that ability. We can't do it by the way we think or the things that we say about him. Someone can have a very low view of God and try to make him somehow more like us, but that doesn't change his position. We need to come humbly before his throne and never take or assume a posture of pride or that we know better before our sovereign. And the way in which we we arrive at this high view of God is, I believe, through the systematic study of his word. And this is done primarily through expository teaching, which means that we will not skip over parts of his word. His word is authoritative for the believer. And these are as, there are aspects of God revealed in the scriptures that we can't miss, we don't want to miss. We cannot just promote a God of love and mercy and grace if we don't understand that he is also holy, and that he is wrathful towards sins, and he is just in his punishment of sin. To gloss over things is not helpful for anyone and can actually lead to a false understanding of who God is and why and how he has saved us. And false doctrine typically stems from not presenting the full picture of God revealed in the Scripture. And because we as a church are committed to this style of teaching, it doesn't excuse us as individuals to not go out ourselves into the Scriptures and do our own study. We should all be students of God's Word. We should be continually seeking to have our worldview shaped by His truth. We should never arrive at this place where we think we have read it through, And now it's something to be put on the shelf 
and let's go find out, let's find out what all the spiritual self-help books have to say. No, we want to meditate continually, a lifelong process of meditating on it, feasting on it, growing in it. And that points to the first value that we'll cover under our vision statement next week, and that is the authority of Scripture. So we exist to glorify God as a Christ-centered church who is faithfully committed to a high view of God and His Word through expository preaching while equipping the saints to advance the cause of Christ both in our community and around the world. And I know I'm going a little long, but I really wanted to kind of flesh this out so you could see how we arrived at this statement. But the calling that is placed upon the elders and the pastors of the church is to equip the saints. And so the teaching of the Word of God will be the primary instrument used in equipping those who are called saints. Ephesians 4, 11 through 6, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. We want to be a church that encourages its people to step out into their homes, to step into their workspaces, to step out into their communities to engage in the advancement of the gospel. And the saint here, equipping of the saints, it's not a person who gets a special honor or accolade in a particular religion, but according to Scripture, a saint is another word for a Christian. Once one is saved, the indwelling Holy Spirit is the teacher within us, We should be turned on with a desire to want to know more of who God is, and we want to cultivate that here through expository teaching and by making resources available and by leading an example so that we can grow together in our faith and send out the saints for doing the work of Christ in advancing his kingdom with those around us wherever God sends us. So we affirm that we are committed to advance the cause of Christ both in our community and around the world. And this is a response to the Great Commission that every believer is charged with. At the end of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And advancing the calls of Christ is what I'll end our vision overview with today. Because the cause as I see it is so that people may know him through a personal relationship based on faith in his completed work on the cross and a genuine repentance of their sin. The Apostle Paul saw the gospel as of first importance wherever he went to preach. In 1 Corinthians 15.3 he says this, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins with accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And the message of the gospel is what man must first understand. With a regenerate heart, or without a regenerate heart, one cannot hope to understand the truth that are in the scriptures. Salvation comes by the Spirit of God moving upon the heart to save someone. And when the Word of God 
pricks the conscience, when it convicts, it is then coming to that place where we are confronted with the reality and the weight of that sin. And then the knowledge of what God did by providing His Son as the perfect gift of His grace to be the substitutionary atonement for our sin. No work of ours, no good deed or cumulative good deeds could ever earn us a righteous standing before God. And without Christ's shed blood standing between us and the wrath of God, we would be condemned. And we love to hear and teach on this wonderful, comforting verse that comes from John chapter 316 that everybody probably knows here. You can recite it from memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But what often gets left out are the verses that come after that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. No one wants to speak of God's condemnation, but that is the reality of our standing before a holy God, having not trusted in Jesus Christ, taking of our sin on himself, and having paid the penalty of death that our sins deserved. Salvation is a transformative work of God. We are dead in our trespasses of sin and condemned, but made alive in Christ. And the transformation or rebirth is where that repentance part come in. Uh, Scripture tells us that we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We are to recant of our sin, but then we are to continue in a steadfast forsaking of sin in our lives. But we have His Holy Spirit within us helping us in that repentance, in living that life uh, that is after repentance. Now, we are not made perfect in salvation, but we are also not in a license to sin because of His grace. And the transformation is that we are now grieved by that sin. We want to confess it when we do commit sin. Paul will ask the rhetorical question about those who would think that they should just go on sinning so that they can receive more of God's grace. His reply is certainly not. He severely rebukes that in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. For those thinking this, he asks, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Because by salvation, in salvation, by putting our faith in Jesus Christ as the one who took our sins into the cross and believing in his resurrection as the justification for that sin, our disposition... The how we view sin in our life has changed. We can no longer, well, I'll just use this analogy real quick because we used to raise pigs. I know Ray raises pigs, but he's not here to tell it to you. But a pig is at home in the mud, and in that mud is not just mud. It's the things that they do in the mud, and they're content to wallow around in that. And really, when you think about us lost in our sin and under condemnation, that was at one time home for us. But when we are saved, when we are made alive in Christ, we should no longer want to wallow in that mud and all that other stuff that's in the mud. That's no longer home to us. Our home is found through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are brought into a peace relationship with God. We don't want to live there anymore. The unsaved need to cry out for His mercy to break them from the bonds of sin that destroys and corrupts and to bring them into a right relationship with Himself, to be restored to a peace relationship with God the Father through redemption that is found only 
in Jesus Christ, his son. And so that, I believe, is the cause of Christ, that we are to go out into our communities and into our families and everywhere we find ourselves to advance the cause of Christ. We exist to glorify God as a Christ-centered church who is faithfully committed to a high view of God and his word through expository preaching while equipping the saints to advance the cause of Christ, both in our community and around the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. And if there's anything that I said and so much of my words that were interspersed and your scriptures in between that I don't want to corrupt anything, God, that, that um, you know, might not be in alignment with your truth. So please help us to only take away from here the things that are of you, God. I thank you for what we've seen you do throughout the history, the short history of Carlsbad Bible Church. We know it started long ago with some faithful believers here. Um, it, it ceased to be for a while, although I really didn't, um, and then you have brought it about yet again, and we just want to be committed to what was begun. And we thank you for faithful servants along the way. But we don't give them the glory, Lord. We give you the glory for working through them and for working through us. And so help us to take these things seriously as we look ahead to what we feel you are doing here at Carlsbad Bible Church, to use this vision as the sideboards on which we will navigate the path ahead of us, God. And I just thank you for the faithful believers here. And I pray, God, that all of us are using our gifts to serve you and to glorify you. And if we have not, that maybe something that was said here will cause them to want to step in and to help serve and to find their place here within the body. We know it takes all of us, God. And we just want to honor you. We want to do your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.